Welcome to episode 57 of the Contrafabulist podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And we have a lot to talk about this week as we did not record a podcast last weekend. Yeah, we were, uh, I don't know, I think we could have pulled it off, but it just didn't uh, come to mind because we were in Iceland taking beautiful tours around waterfalls and whatnot. So recording a podcast, I don't think was uh, front and center. Yeah, we, um, yeah, it was actually quite glorious to be out of the country. Although I admit, um, I did actually sneak away from the conference that I was at, which we'll talk about hopefully more later, but I did sneak away one afternoon to watch the to watch the Comey testimony, even though I was thrilled to sort of have flown halfway around the world to get away from the United States of America um, for some oddly compelling reason. I, I felt um, I felt like I needed to pay attention. But but so, yeah, we have we have two weeks worth of such stuff to talk about. And although there were plenty, I think there's been plenty of political machinations. We'll focus, I think, primarily on tech and the politics of tech specifically, and I think we'll just kick things off. I think we'll run through several of these, but I just want to kick things off with noting this week that Verizon did announce it's finalized its acquisition of um, of Yahoo, <laughs> and it will be merging AOL and Yahoo into a new company called Oath. Wow. Uh, I mean, retiring the Yahoo brand, this is a, where are we? We're 2017. So that's like really, I would say, like a, a solid marker for the end of a of a, the, the kind of OG internet age, right? I mean, no matter what you talk about with Web 1.0 or 2.0 or, or other hype, just a major milestone. Well, I would, I don't know, internet, I, I, yeah, I don't know what number we would put after the web, but I would say that Yahoo, like, I mean, in fact, like, much like AOL, was really one of the, again, so like 2.0 doesn't quite make sense for Yahoo, but 1.0 doesn't seem, doesn't seem quite fair either. But it was this, I mean, incredibly important web portal um, founded in 1994, um, and I think it's you know with its acquisition. And the last time we had actually the last time we had the um, we did the podcast, we talked a lot about um, Pinboard buying Delicious, and of course Yahoo was one of the many company or yeah Delicious was one of the many companies that Yahoo had had gobbled up um, over the course of its history, and so it does it it has owned I think some of the pretty important, um, pretty important web, web properties. Um, and it's, you know, I think it is, it does mark, uh, the end of, of a certain, of a certain era to, to have lost the, you know, the, the company that people would debate on whether or not when you spelled Yahoo, you had to include the exclamation point at the end of the company. Well, for me, I mean, a, a quick timeline of Yahoo. I mean, Yahoo was like one of my clients. He thought the, the the world began at Yahoo. When you opened up your Yahoo Mail client, it was like the invitation to the web. He he thought everything with the internet began there. Um, but for it me did. personally, I mean, I think it did for a lot of people. I mean, I think that that's that's what's so fascinating 
about that era of web portal and what I find so striking today about the way in which another technology that grew out of the very same period, the learning management system, behaves just like Yahoo or AOL did in the 90s, right? It's a portal, it's a it's a portal to the internet, but it doesn't really want you to go on the open web. Yeah, it's a walled garden web, right? It's that original vision of that. But, you know, for me, Yahoo, yeah, it's. I think it was the, the introduction to the web for a lot of people. But for me, it was the introduction or, or a, played a big role, I would say, in the API space because Pinboard and, uh, or Delicious, excuse me, Delicious and uh, Flickr were both acquired by Yahoo. But for me, Yahoo Pipes is another really important kind of superior technology, weird um, kind of not, you know, companies not investing where they should be. I would say Yahoo for me is all about acquisitions. So I'm happy to see it go. I don't, I can't think of anything Yahoo really did for me personally, other than acquire companies that I really loved and looked and looked up to and played a significant role in my life. So um it's it's an interest end to an interesting time period, I would say, and it's I just um, I'm happy make, to see him go. I I want to make one more comment before we move on to the next the next thing that we want to talk about. I just want to I just want to note that you know with that with the acquisition being finalized, Marissa Mayer um, resigned from the company, and I think she'll walk away with a, a a pretty substantial golden parachute. We don't have to shed any tears about Marissa Mayer, but I do think it's interesting the way in which her leadership has been utterly panned, and really I think the the prospects of turning around a company like Yahoo were always incredibly challenging and it's one of these interesting ways i think in which you know she was held to a standard that i think many male tech CEOs are never held to um the expectations that she would be able to do things were i think i think unfair and um uh, you know dare we add uh, fairly fairly sexist um i think that she yeah, I, I just want to note that, like, um, I think that I don't think she was a, a great CEO by any means, but I don't think actually there are a lot of great CEOs, and we'll talk about um, one of them uh, a bit later. But um, I did, I did like when someone asked her what what she was looking forward to in life after Yahoo. I did, I did appreciate that she said she was looking forward to going back to Gmail. <laughs> oh, ouch. Ouch! Um, not not building off of 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 that, but I think we, it, before we close up Yahoo, we we have to mention the breach. You know, just and I don't I don't blame her for that because this happened. You know, started cascading, I guess, prior to her coming on as CEO. But the Yahoo breach is a pretty significant kind of kind of representation. Of, I would say of the current dumpster fire that is the internet, and so I would say it's. It, it's very fitting that Yahoo go out in this fashion, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, acquired by uh, Verizon for I think over four billion dollars. So despite it being, you know, despite Yahoo being sort of in many ways the laughing stock for a lot of folks when they think about um, uh, technology companies that have sort of lived past, you know, past their expiration date, um, it, it did it did sell for a sizable amount of money. Okay, so next story I want to talk about is one that I don't I don't know if I have a lot to say about it, but I wanted to include it because it's really it's really interesting. Um, so the the Knight Institute, which is um, the 
Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Um, disclosure, I'm a Spencer Fellow at Columbia University. Um, the Knight Institute is, I believe, file, filed a lawsuit or sent a letter, I think, perhaps they didn't file a lawsuit. They sent a letter demanding that President Trump um, unblock people from Twitter if he plans on using his personal account, the real Donald Trump Twitter handle, to communicate official policy positions. And there's been, there's been this really interesting discussion among um, White House spokespeople and among, I think, um, political observers and reporters is, are the things that the president tweets um, under his personal account or, or even that he retweets under the official account, tweets and retweets under the official account, are those official statements by the President of the United States? What are the rules about archiving those in terms of the presidential, of, in terms of preserving presidential records? Um, but what does it mean? And the first, um, the, Knight, the Knight Institute is suggesting this is a First Amendment issue. What does it mean that he blocks people? He blocks Stephen King, for example. He seems to block a handful of of verified accounts of people who, who verified and non-verified accounts of people who, for whatever reason, irritate him when he happens to be checking his message, his Twitter messages and ranting at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we've talked about before about, you know, managing our, our online presence and what we can do and deleting our tweets and, and, and curating, you know, what is our digital presence, but what does that look like when you're a public figure. And, uh, you know, I don't have a really strong or well thought out kind of stand on this yet. Um, this is another one of those kind of uh, legal areas of this new technology, the internet and the web that's grinding, I think, getting a lot of scrutiny. And I think it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to agree with all this scrutiny or the outcomes or, or want them applied to me. Um, but, you know, I think it's an interesting conversation. I look forward to seeing where it goes. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something that we've talked, I think, before on the podcast too, which is this uh, stance that a lot of these technology companies, I would say that Facebook is probably the company does that does this most often, most egregiously, insisting that it's a media company, not a publishing company, insisting that it's not uh, or a media, it's not a media outlet or a media company. Um, and so, but thinking about what rules do apply in terms of the in terms of the freedom of the press and freedom and First Amendment rights on these new platforms, and if we're if we're arguing that these platforms are a quote unquote public forum, um, what does it mean to be able to block someone or not block someone? And as you said, I think that this is this is a great example of the ways in which um, laws don't are are laws of a pre digital world don't necessarily seem to always work out when when applied to digital to to digital platforms and to digital activities. I think we go for a lot of we we try all the time to talk about, you know, analogies when we talk about these things, but the the analogies don't don't always work. And so, you know, what is it you know, what does it mean for the president? What does it mean for any public um, office holder, right? Any government official to block someone online? But then you go, you know, then then you know, what are, what is the what are the repercussions of this? Can kind of kind of teacher who's a public employee, right, or a teacher at a public school, um, can they block people? So this is, you know, I think that this is the, this is where I, I find the ACLU to sometimes be quite unhelpful with their, 
um, that with their interpretations of 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 free speech um, absolutism, free, um, free, the ACLU and EFF, sort of these absolutist um, models that don't make sense. But I don't know. I mean, if Trump if Trump blocks people, you know, is that it does that violate does that violate for the First Amendment? Does, yeah, do we? I, I mean, I think it. What it does is it's. It shines a light on this kind of shape shifting behavior that is is the the tech company. You know, I say that all caps. You know, because there's a lot of things out there that are tech companies that are that are infiltrating various industries and doing certain things. And what Facebook calls itself is very calculating and thoughtful. So it doesn't fall under certain regulatory kind of uh, you know when it comes to elections. You know, things that it can influence. We see this with with Uber and and how it's able to shape shift. And avoid kind of legacy um, transportation laws and, and and other things, you know, at the municipal level. And we see, um, you know, say, you know, companies that have a lot of, you know, a big portion of the web runs on them or is dependent on them, like Google or another company that maybe, you know, you're a bookseller and then all of a sudden you decide to buy a major grocery chain. Not that that would happen or anything like that. You that know, what so happens when... When these when these tech companies, these tech giants, kind of slide in and do these unexpected moves, and you're like, "Well, wait, what does that mean? What is that? What, how do laws apply to that?" I think it's just it's just shining a light on one small sliver of that, which I think is interesting. Well, my my uh, favorite uh, Charlie Brown lookalike, um, Mark Andreessen, likes to say that software is eating the world. So I think that there's a certain amount of cheering from venture capitalists and those in Silicon Valley about these moves. They see this as being obviously beneficial to their bottom line, right? Beneficial to the money that they've invested um, in these companies becoming these giant platforms. But the question about, you know, um, how, how do we respond? How do our regulatory mechanisms, how do our laws respond to these? I mean, I think that Amazon's decision or announcement this week to buy Whole Foods, um, you know, again, here's the, the price tag on this one, is $13.4 billion. So um, triple what Yahoo was worth. Funny, you know, um, actually having a material space um, in which you sell a product instead of a virtual space that's really funded by advertising, Steam seems to still be a more valuable company. Anyway, but Amazon is buying Whole Foods, which um, I think raises a ton of questions and, is, and I think underscores something that I've been thinking about for quite some time now, which is I think we need to revisit some of the anti-monopoly um, actions that were taken against, um, uh, well, against other big businesses. And I, but I think that it's complicated by the, the kinds of things that these companies are doing. I'm not sure that it falls under the way in which, um, anti, you know, what the way in which the, the regulations sort of see monopolies. Like I think Google, I mean, I think Google needs to be, I think that Alphabet, I guess it's now, but I think that, I mean, why are, why is that company, why does that company exist? It needs is, to be is, broken apart. Is that uh, uh, reflective of why they, they did that to the company, you think, and started um, separating things out into logical buckets? Not, not like, hey, we're going to do that. We're going to do what regula regulatory, but, 
power. Oh, as a per- as a protective mechanism. We're just kind of def- defending ourselves in, in response to that maybe coming down the pipe. Interesting, interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but that may, perhaps, perhaps. Um, uh, I, you know, I think that s- s- setting people in different parts of the office space does not mean that you've actually separated, you know, separated the the business entities out. And if if your research on um, the singularity is actually still being funded by, um, you know, uh, AdSense, then I'm not sure that they're really as separate as you know as the the, the decision making structure um, might make it out to be um, but yeah I think that both Google and Amazon are becoming and um, uh, you know perhaps we could add perhaps we could add some other companies to this but I think in particular Google and Amazon Microsoft wishes Microsoft wishes it was back in the you know in in that in that sort of company, but I think my uh, Google and Amazon really are these giant these behemoths now that I think raises all sorts of questions about um, competition, um, which is of course I think the uh, what you know which is what usually what you go after people for when you're when you're accusing them of being a monopoly. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, I think it's so hard to keep up with. With that shape shifting, what is Amazon? You know, the classic notion is they're a bookseller, but you know, I don't see Amazon commerce for me as like number three or four. You know, I see Amazon as compute, I see Amazon as storage, I see them as the cornerstones of all these other industries. You know, they're getting HIPAA, they're healthcare, they're doing a lot of stuff. But what does it look like? You know, as part of their delivery and their and their kind of. You know, they they did that first kind of sucker punch to to retail back in the day. You know, bookstores, that that classic, um, Borders, you know, type thing. And then uh, now they're doing this kind of second on retail. And 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 we've heard a lot of recent recently about the demise of retail. You know, what does that look like? And I would say this that's probably you know part of a story that's put out there by Amazon to kind of soften up the the, the bedrock of this as they're going into this kind of new new age of retail but battling it out with Walmart and you know what does that look like when you have an you know Uber like delivery system for food for fresh produce for for everything we don't have drones yet but we're going to have drones and everyone's paid as little you know Uber style model paid as as low as you possibly can go you know this is the next generation of commerce and and retail and delivery it's this weird kind of hybrid of of the new and the old i guess so why do you say why do you say that they're an 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 uber model i don't get that uh, as far as the retail like if we're gonna if you you know they're gonna start doing deliveries out of out of their store they've been already playing around with this model how do you how do you do delivery styles you know situations for fresh produce um out of your store, those lot, those drop boxes, those kind of drive-in places. So they're going to start figuring out how to do the the delivery pieces. Get get workers. You know, Walmart's already been testing this out. How do you get workers to do? You know, kind of um, what's the delivery? One of the the post Postmates or you know the delivery companies that are like playing off the Uber model for getting physical items to you. You know, that's what Amazon's going to start playing with as far as their shipping model that's in a post UPS kind of era when era when Amazon, you know, has their own stores, their own rehab, warehouses. How do they get your physical product to you from, you know, within that model? That's all I was referencing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's interesting. I don't know if I would, I mean, I'm not sure if Uber would be the, the company that I would um, tie, con- connect to Amazon to. I actually think that Amazon is its own um, terribly exploitative um, company when it ter- talk when it comes to its employees. And that's the difference I see. I mean, Amazon, you are employees of Amazon as opposed to being this freelance freelance labor. But it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's notoriously a terrible place to work. Um, I suppose that the Mechanical Turk is more of a freelance labor market, though, isn't it? Yeah, and and they're they're playing around with other delivery solutions. They got their fingers in other kind of those those uh, kind of scalable, you know, people delivery systems. You know, they're playing around, you know, as well as the drone stuff. So they got their fingers in a lot of lot of pots that 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 are similar to, to Uber. Is all I was trying to you know just use it as a reference. Yeah. So I think that I mean I think that the that the that the acquisition is interesting. I think that you know what what Amazon gets with um with buying Whole Foods is re- is is retail space, also high-end retail space. Or not I mean not high-end, but maybe slightly above middle um retail space, right? And so um, this is a different. I, I think that when you you mentioned Walmart, I think it's actually a different segment that that this is making a play for, a different population segment than than Walmart, perhaps. Um, but I think that it, it immediately does give Amazon retail space to be able to do, as you said, to be able to um, to be able to um, have uh, like have these lockers and stuff. I know that Amazon has been opening opening those lockers up in various places, opening up where you, you know, instead of having your package delivered to your house, you can go pick it up at a locker sometimes quick more, sometimes more quickly than perhaps it would be delivered to you. Um, so I think that that's, I think that that's interesting, but I think that both Whole Foods and Amazon have really terrible, um, are known as sort of being exploitative employees, terrible places to work. The the warehouses at Amazon are terrible places to work. Even in the executive, the more sort of the the white collar jobs in in Amazon are known as terrible places to work. Um, And so this is, this is a bad deal. This is a bad deal, I think, for for workers. Um, To put it in a little bit of perspective, though, I think Walmart has like over 2 million employees Right, and Amazon has about three hundred thousand employees. And so, I how much Whole Foods has? I'm not sure. I could probably Google it, but you know, thinking about what will Amazon, you know, is Amazon interested in? Um, uh, Whole Foods has ninety thousand employees. So, you know, what's what's the future of the cashier at Whole Foods look like? Um, what is the future of? Um, uh, you know, uh, is this going to be something that gets that gets quickly automated, or again, is is Bezos going to look for a different kind of play? Like I I I think that, I mean, I, I'm I'm always really hesitant with some of these like we're going to automate everything conversations because I think that um, some of the retail that's surviving and some of, I mean, I think will is because people still appreciate having a person. Some people appreciate under some purchasing situations to have a person to talk to. And so I don't know, I don't know if the, if Whole Foods is going to be sort of vast, um, 
vast automated uh, mall space or or not. I don't know. I mean, but I I I think it's a I don't think it's a it's a good signal for for the workers of, at Whole Foods. Well, I think the we bought a taco or a couple of tacos last night while we were at Whole Foods. And, we, did go shop- uh, we did go shopping at Whole Foods yesterday. We did. We, just full disclosure, we went shopping at Whole Foods. And when we bought the taco from the kind of food truck-esque stand in there, it was a, it was a Korean taco, I had to go up to the, the iPad interface to order it and choose the ingredients and then it printed out a thing which I brought up to the little local little counter there. So I could see that fitting in into an Amazon, you know, platform model as well as, you know, the bakery, the other items, as well as a section of it that could be basically anything, you know, brought to you in the store. Wasn't there a patent that you said about Amazon this week? Oh yeah, comparison shopping. They had a patent that would prevent um, comparison shopping style features in applications when you're in other stores. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that these are the kinds of, (laughs) the kinds of things to be paying attention to, but, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things, so I've said, you know, thinking about these different CEOs, you know, the, the profile of the CEO, um, you know, Marissa Mayer sort of seen as being this really awful CEO. And Jeff Bezos is, I think, a different breed. Um, again, he's sort of he sort of has been um, quite comfortable with um, with operating at a loss. I mean, Amazon was sort of Amazon has operated operated a loss at a loss for a very very long time. He seems fine with sort of a long. He seems interested in a long game, in the way that um, I think makes him. Uh, an interesting, an interesting person to 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 pay attention to, and of course, you know he owns the Washington Post now, and asked Twitter the other day to help him um, help him find out how he's going to spend his um, become a better philanthropist. So, yay! Well, I'm, hopefully he I stays mean, away from education. I mean, I love hate Amazon because of Amazon Web Services and that and the cloud, you know. So yeah, if you're you're playing a long game, you're able to kind of reinvent, um, you know, how the game is played and and where it's played and and they, you know, they have their finger, you know, a big portion of the web runs on Amazon, and so that's a pretty pretty significant advantage when you start looking at this. But you know, do I trust them? No, I don't trust any of these big codes like that. Do I? I like Bezos's politics. I would say it's no, it's closer to the realm of of where we're operating, but no. So we just got to see where it goes, I guess. Um, I was going to say something else about Amazon and I totally forgot. Oh, okay. Moving on Um, to another CEO um, who is now taking a leave of absence from his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, exploitative, misogynist, racist, um, ableist uh, company, Uber. Travis Kalanick will be, has, is, um, he, he wasn't fired, which is fascinating to me. He's taking a leave of absence, I think for an unspecified length of time, following, wow, I, I, I don't even know if we could come up with a list of all of the things that have happened just this year alone um, that have really pointed to Uber as being really, I think, sort of emblematic of how awful the Silicon Valley um, ideology manifests itself in these companies. Well, it's uh, it, 
All I got to do is listen to anywhere in the last 10 podcasts. I think we've covered quite a, quite a laundry list of what they've done. But what we really is kind of top of our mind right now as he takes his, his leave of absence is how everyone's using this as a, as a, as a model. You know, um, we are using as a model of like what you should not be doing when you're building a company or using technology where there's other people out there who are using as a model saying, this is exactly how you should build your tech company. And it, 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 is, it is a model, I think, that represents Silicon Valley and how you disrupt, move fast, break things, create new um, uh, business models, as well as shape shift because you're a tech company and disrupt these, these vital aspects of our, of, our, of our world, like transportation and like education. And I think, you know, at, at a, one of your talks in Iceland, we see this where you actually were talking about you know, this problem that people are using Uber as a model. And there's, there's, there's some, some jackass bro in the audience that, that, that yells out, you know, that he, he firmly believes in the Uber model and, and you're wrong. And I think, again, just representing, you know, the illness that is out there right now. Yeah. So uh, just within, since we last did the podcast, just to, I mean, to sort of make it clear. um, So Uber fired 20 employees because of sexual harassment, like an investigation into sexual harassment. Former Attorney General Eric Holder released a report after they fired these people about the sort of pervasive culture, a pervasive culture um, at at Uber. Um, The the tech uh, publication Recode found more people who were still involved in really horrific things that were not part of the 20 who were fired, including one executive who'd gotten hold of, a, of the medical records of a woman who was raped by her Uber driver and shared them with Travis Kalanick. Um, and then a, someone on the board of directors had to re, um, resign or ended up resigning after he made a sexist, mark, um, a sexist remark uh, at, at, you know, at a board meeting. Um, the I think that the you know my point um, at the at this event in Iceland was saying you know I, I I think that people need to really I hear the Uber for education thing a lot I hear people touting Uber as this exciting new model for um, for how companies are organized for how um, companies can avoid actually hiring employees to sort of rely on this sort of um, freelance these sort of freelance model and it's a it's you know how companies can violate um, violate purposefully violate any sort of um, regulatory mechanisms um, sort of move to sort of move forward with getting you know with uh, again um, entering into entering into markets and I said that you know for me it's something I repeat a lot but this is you know in some ways Uber really like I said, exemplifies what I call the Silicon Valley ideology, right? Libertarianism, this idea that government regulation is bad. Travis Kalanick is a huge fan of Ayn Rand. Um, so it's very much this very Randian notion of the, of the um, entrepreneur up against sort of the evil government, the evil government that stifles all um, entrepreneurial uh, drives. Um, uh, neoliberalism, right? We see the disinvestment of public for public infrastructure. Um, some cities even handing over uh, public transportation, outsourcing it to private companies like Uber. So the so the sort of neoliberalist bent, sort of markets, you know, markets sort of at the extreme rather than investing in public infrastructure. Um, 
you know, imperialism, and then, you know, not to mention this sort of absolute repugnant sexism and racism that permeates Silicon Valley companies that are overwhelmingly staffed by um, white men and really interested in propping up a culture that has no interest in addressing and addressing its bias and instead would rather like you said shout um shout down people who who point this out it was really this the um i have to say that that conference in iceland was probably one of my worst um the worst events i've ever attended and i've attended a lot of silicon valley ed tech events in which i was expecting to sort of see that kind of um, bravado and um, on display. It was very strange to see it um, embodied in, in uh, among uh, f- folks in Europe, and it was um, it was really off-putting to have several people sort of cheer it on, like cheer on the notion that a woman speaking on stage would be shouted down by a man. Um, I don't know. I don't. I, I haven't asked people, but I'm, I'm guessing that none of the men. Or, or <laughs> very rarely do any of the men who tour around doing um, doing keynotes in ed tech are they shouted down um, and interrupted by by the audience? I don't think it's a common experience. Or do they or have and then have that um, that sort of being praised by by other by other people? Well, I would add while you're. To a- telling everyone to have a kind of caution around this that hey this we should be thinking twice about this and and the impacts of this and then someone shouts you down yes. about that specific yes. thing i mean just yes we should we layers. should we should be very wary of of the misogynist culture um and the sort of ideology that's baked into technologies and then baked into education technologies and to have a man in the audience and shout me down was pretty special was well, really special. And then the other dimension of Uber is really the, 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 the lack of algorithmic transparency, observability, and then ultimately we've learned that um, there's, you know, dudes behind the scene pulling the levers and grayballing people and gaslighting people into, you know, different ways. So the fact that this is a model and, and people are still, you know, in, in Iceland at this small education event, that yeah, I was pretty shocked to see it happening. Yeah, it was, it was really, it was, it felt, I mean, I'm glad you said gaslighting because my experience was of, was, it was, it was surreal. So I was the first speaker on the second day and the previous afternoon, the event, the event ended with a panel discussion. I get a panel is not quite the right word, like a fireside chat kind of thing. Uh, Donald Clark, Roger Shank. And um, moderated by Andrew Keene. So three white men on stage pontificating about why higher education is no longer necessary. Um, both Clark and Shank really promoting the idea of that what we that um, that this was all about jobs, that universities didn't do a good job training people with the skills necessary for a high-tech, information-focused economy, and that we needed more apprentice apprenticeships. Um, Shank boasting that he'd been hanging out with Trump and that Trump had made an announcement about apprenticeships. And I was sort of mortified. Like, here I was, you know, here was someone on stage in, in Iceland, a, a country that, you know, as we traveled around, was so visibly... Um, seeing the effects of global climate change. And here was this guy on stage boasting about he, how he was 
friends with with Trump, you know, right on the on the heels of Trump announcing that um, he was going to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement, and and both Clark and 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 Shank really, it's like I think putting forward a lot of misinformation about what they thought was, you know, that they thought that, you know, sort of uh, educated liberal elites were had sort of caused. Um, particularly at the universities, had sort of caused economic ang- uh, economic insecurity and had led to the rise of populism. So, like a lot of things that just really were, were demonstrably untrue. Um, and then, sort of again, making this argument not overtly, but sort of implicitly making an argument for a return, sort of like a "Make America Great Again" argument, in which. Um, the university really became once again the realm of the white male um, intellectual elite, and everyone else got job would get jobs training. Right? We need. I think Clark even said we need to make sure that campuses are unsafe spaces again. Um, and me thinking, well, that that's actually making that's really sort of making sure that women and people of color are routinely excluded from higher education. Right, routinely ex- excluded from these from these institutions. So the next morning, I gave a talk. Uh, there were three of us on the opening, like the opening morning session. I spoke about the history of personalization. That this notion, like you know, personalized learning is this buzzword now, um, and it's there's really no agreed upon definition. I think that pe- some people, when they hear it, they they feel as though this is an invocation of sort of John Dewey, but it's really not. My argument was that's really not what the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world are building. Mark Zuckerberg is not building a Dewey, a Dewey-focused education system. He's building something based on what he knows about personalization of the web, which is really about advertising, advertising, right? Profiling, segmenting, marketing, conversion rates. That's what personalized learning is. But um, so I gave this talk, and then the next person got up and opened with a story about how computers can read your mind. And then the third person gave was from Singularity University and stood up and gave a talk about how robots are going to take over. We should like we should learn to love robots because they're going to raise our children, teach us, and care for us um, when we're dying. And she showed it like a lot of her examples were just like made like they were again like patently untrue like un un unsubstantiated untrue prototypes perhaps but nothing that was actually material substantial real making these predictions you know very singularity like predictions you know we I mean I think she said that we understand the human brain perfectly which is not true. And now we can map it, like now we can build machines, computers that can do anything the human brain can do, also not true. Um, And then in two years time, X, Y, or Z technology that you'll have on your iPhone will be able to do X, Y, or Z thing. Like again, like just made up stuff. And I was there thinking, this is, this is wild. Like, and the audience loved it. They hated me. They hated me. And they loved that she showed she showed an animated GIF that someone had like edited together of to make it look as, as though this guy had a hair dryer that was shooting out cats. It was just you know editing, right? Stop motion editing piece together. But she stood up there saying that we can now three D print cats, and the audience was like, "Oh my God, we can three D print cats!" And I thought, "We are we are like education is in so much trouble." 
you know, we talk a lot about the fake news thing, but I'm sorry, I'm like totally rambling here, but like we're in so much trouble if a room full of education technologists are cheering on absolutely made up stories about the future and, and cheering for people who are actually really excited about a reinstatement of populism or even feudalism and certainly happy to have a world be more sexist um, and more exploitative. And the minute that a woman stands up and says, you know, this is, this is not just, nothing that we're doing here is building towards racial justice, social justice, um, economic justice, uh, gender justice, uh, and I get, I get jeered. So, I mean, I was there, so I, you know, I wouldn't say the room was definitely against you or anything, but that, because I was watching people's faces as you were talking, and there was definitely people intrigued with what you were saying. Now, they weren't, definitely weren't as animated as the, the, the other side of the people, but I, the people who were talking definitely it's a sign that things are bad in education that you know basically the the second guy after you was like a grandpa's story about how this stuff's confusing but everything's going to be all right it'll be able to read your mind oh he's worried about she he was, was worried about his two his two sons yeah what he was worried world? about his two sons yeah what kind and, of world but she they she was a cyborg she was straight up not a human being i and i stand by that she was like prototype sent out by singularity u to and just had you know a bunch of youtube clips that she could show to kind of justify her case that was she was strange but i think your your message was received it's but it it does worry me that people at all entertain that stuff like it's it's right around the corner and we should be thinking about how we're going to do this in the classroom it was so then um i guess we should we've really run over but um i gave a talk uh what is today? Today's Sunday. I gave a talk Thursday. <laughs> Thursday, I gave a keynote. My last, this is the last talk. You won't have Audrey Waters to kick around anymore. Um, no, uh, this is my last talk for a year, thanks to my Spencer Fellowship. Um, I gave a talk at um, NMC, and I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to talk about, like, I wanted to talk, tell a story that had everything to do with education technology, but I wanted to tell that story by not looking at uh, specifically classroom tools. Um, and I wanted, uh, hopefully, if you were paying attention, you would recognize that um, the, the things I were talking about was the kind of things that get predicted a lot, right? That the artificial intelligence, virtual assistants, um, internet, con internet connected devices, um, predictive analytics, learning analytics, personalized learning, all of these buzzwords of education technology. I told a story through about the rise of, uh, well, about uh, a virtual baby monitor, a baby monitor that Mattel said, and this lady from Singularity touted as well, that Mattel boasts was gonna, will, will be able to raise your baby for you. Um, I told the history of the baby monitor, the history of these other parenting technologies, um, I thought it was, I thought it was, I was pleased with the work. I thought it was clever, <laughs> um, the way that keynotes should be clever. And, um, and again, like it was really fascinating to see men respond, um, on Twitter. In this case, nobody jeered at me from the audience, but men respond on Twitter by just like the sort of going into this like very strange uh, attack mode in which they feel compelled to sort of put me put me in my place so 
I think that's something we should, you know, make sure and address, you know, in as many of our future talks is just that that strange connection between technology and men that when you go after tech and say, hey, we should actually be a little critical about that, that somehow it's translated as a, as a personal attack on men. I think that's something we should we need to keep unpacking because it's a big problem. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're fragile. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> well, yeah, sorry, we really ran over. I had to get some of that off my chest. I have a lot. I have a lot more to get off my chest about, like, about the, this, I mean, I've just got a lot of things. I'm really looking forward to, uh, we've got two months here at home before we relocate to to New York. And I have a lot of stuff to process about people's reaction, I think, to my blocking annotations on the site. People sort of, ways in which people sort of demand, demand things of me, um, sort of psychically, intellectually, emotionally, um, and feel as though they can um, speak to me, speak about me, speak of me, demand, again, demand things um, in, in certain ways. I want to I talk about that because I think that it's, um, I think that it's relevant in thinking about what does it mean, what does it mean to do public scholarship, what does it mean to be a, you know, to come back to this questions around the you know, Twitter and blocking too, like what does it mean to participate in these in these digital settings, knowing that we're doing so, I mean, again, with the exception of my website, which, yeah, <laughs> there's no comments and no annotations for a reason, but that often that we're, we're expected to participate in these online conversations on someone else's platform, Facebook's platform, Twitter's platform. And then when, we, when we're doing these face-to-face things, particularly at conferences that are um, largely sponsored and funded by these you know, other big tech companies that were very beholden to, to um, people feel very beholden to sort of saying nice things about corporations and find it really upsetting when I am not nice to corporations. As though, corp- I mean, who, corporations are somehow even more fragile than the white male ego, right? Yeah, well, lots of things to unpack. We'll, uh, I think it's a sign we we shouldn't miss a week because there's too much to talk about. So uh, hopefully we can get some good stuff in. All right. Till next week then. All righty.